This is the Bates Bobcast, our weekly podcast that takes a look at the week that was in Bates Athletics. My name is Aaron Morse, and this week we remember Bates men's cross country and track and field six-time All-American and two-time NCAA champion runner John Fitzgerald from the class of 1987. John died of cancer last Friday at the age of 59. His longtime friend, roommate, and teammate, Mark Hatch, also from the class of 1987, joins us to reflect on his memories of John. Plus, we chat with our Bobcats of the Week and introduce you to the new assistant coaches and recruiting coordinators for Bates Rowing. That's this week on the Bates Bobcast. The Bates football team fell at Tufts on Saturday by a score of 44-16. to the Bobcats were within striking distance until the Jumbos scored 14 unanswered points in the fourth quarter. Head coach Matt Coyne joins us to look back on the Tufts contest and ahead to the big game this Saturday at 6 p.m. when the Bobcats host the Colby College Mules. Let's start with what was really cool was seeing Sergio Beltran having such a breakout performance. A couple of big catches, two touchdowns. I mean, he, we, we talked before the year how he's a converted quarterback, but that lends itself well to wide receiver. So what do you see from him to allow him to have that much success there on Saturday? Oh, yeah, I think Sergio just made a, a, some really good contested catches. Um, you know, he's getting on a better chemistry path with Colton. Um, and I think, you know, some of the, the RPO stuff that they did and, just being able to catch and pierce after, you know, get those extra yards, especially the, the, the longer one in the third quarter there to set up, you know, our last scoring drive. Um, but also like the other touch, the touchdown as well on the Raptor, on the little, you know, uh, fade ball there for us, um, you know, was a, was a really pleasant sight to see, you know, for Sergio. Certainly. And then defensively, we talked after the Wesleyan game, we were really impressed with how they stopped the run. It, Tufts was able to run the ball. I don't know what you saw on film or like, you know, it was kind of a 180 from the Wesleyan game. So what adjustments need to be made by the, this young defense? Yeah, I think, you know, we just, uh, we, we didn't, we can't get off the field right now on defense. And that's one of the things that we're really stressing this week as we go into it. And, you know, from our game plan, it was a little bit, you know, they have two really good receivers um, and we were trying to you know, lend some help in the coverage there, and and we just didn't really fit the box um, the right way. Um, and you know, so so for us, it's uh you know make some corrections there and, and make sure that we're seeing you know what the surface is telling us up front, um, but also you know understanding that that we have to we can't just hang out the box to dry. You know, the interior guys in the run game. So you know, we're making corrections this week, and you know, making sure that we get back to the basics, get back to the fundamentals, get back to the techniques, and just keep working at it. You know, Tufts is a very good team. You know, that O line is a very experienced O line, and they were, um, they have you know two graduate seniors at center and guard that you know one's an All American, and they really are you know very physical. Um, so definitely a different brand of football um, that we went up against. And you guys, obviously, you were keeping it close there in the first half. Um, uh, you know the. The final drive, though, there for Tufts, I mean, that's a two-minute offense, defense-type situation, that's something that you probably are going to be practicing as well, right? I mean, those two-minute situations are so critical. Yeah, you know, I think, you know, it's, uh, you know, obviously you don't want to give up any points. Um, you don't want to give up a touchdown. We gave up a field goal. Um, I think there was just a couple, you know, coverage aspects there that, that we just, you know, lacked on. Um, and they had a couple of plays where they caught the ball and, you know, got some extra yardage after the catch. Um you know, so we just have to be better in those situations. And again, it's it's about going through those moments and getting that experience and understanding the urgency, understanding the situation. And um, for some of those guys, you know, understanding the atmosphere as well. You know, it's a, it was a very, very, 
it's cool atmosphere to be quite honest you know mm. night games are always awesome but you're on the road you're against a very good team and, and you're just you know you have to understand the urgency and the margin of error and those points are valuable you know 17 10 at half as opposed to 20 10 at half is a whole different um sort of ball game there Certainly. And, and, you know, with it being a young team, what was kind of your message afterwards or maybe even like, you know, Sunday or Monday about keeping their, you know, heads up coming to such a big game against Colby, I guess? Yeah, I don't think like, you know, I think sometimes, you know, you try not to, you know, obviously we're a young team, but it's not an excuse. You have to, you know, get the guys ready to play. You have to, I have to do a better job preparation wise. Um, You know, so it starts with me there first and and then down the chain um, all the way to our players as well. So I think for us, the biggest thing was, you know, the best thing we have is Tuesday coming up. We get to go back out to practice, and we have a big rivalry week this week against Colby. You know, um, and that's that's the next thing. Like all you can do is put your head down and keep going to work. Um, learn from those experiences, learn from those mistakes, um, and really attack practice. I mean, that's that's the nature of it. You know, this uh, football is a trying sport at times. It, it is very uh, difficult in the lessons it teaches you. Um, and for some of those kids, you know, I thought that the the really nice thing is that our guys were upset. You know, they were, you know, accountable um, and they're ready to get back to work, you know, and I think that's the biggest thing is we've got a journey ahead here and it's a long one and we got to keep just grinding away at it. Um, we have a very good team and we have the capability to win uh, and that's that's the bottom line. So we just have to get back to work and, you know, make sure that you know, we just do a good job throughout the week as we prepare for Colby. Yeah, watching the game, I did see some new faces, little guys who are healthy now. Um, Seneca Moore was mixed in a little bit to the offense, the first-year quarterback. That must be exciting for you guys to have a few more pieces now. Yeah, we're getting guys back. You know, obviously we, we were a little uh, thin on the defensive backside in, the, in this game. We had a couple guys go down throughout the game. But, you know, Seneca, you know, did a really nice job in that role, um, just getting him out there and, and using his athleticism there. Um, but I think, you know, across the board, I think, you know, a lot of guys had some, some good appearances out there. I think that is hidden in the film. You know, Pete Simplicio played a great game. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, really impressed with sort of how we were able to to run the ball at times um, and sustain drives. You know, I think that it was – it was uh, that's a very good defense as well that we're going up against that has a, has a very unique st- scheme. So I think, you know, did some good things there. We just got to be better. We were just a little off, you know, and obviously on defense, the big thing is we just got to get off the field. Um, and, you know, that's something that we're really going to stress this week. Uh, and we're just going to keep getting better at it and understand it. Uh, Colby, obviously, we touched on earlier, big rivalry matchup, another night game. Uh, this one, though, at home, um, obviously last year, another game where it was very close for, for most of it. You guys had the lead there. Uh, what did you learn from that experience against Colby? I mean, obviously, they have new players, too, this year. But what are you going to apply to this season, I guess? Yeah, I think, you know, they have a lot of guys back. You know, I mean, they're they're a team that is very experienced, um, good quality team. Obviously, Coach Cosgrove have a lot of a cre- uh, respect for him. Um, does a good job within that program, but um, you know we know we're capable to win this game, and, and I think we just have to really buy in to our our scheme, our systems, and our confidence level. Like we're coming out in front of a home crowd for a rivalry game, like you know there's nothing better than that. You know, so I mean, understanding that you know throw all the experience, this that out the door, it's a rivalry game. When you lock up on Saturday night, like this is gonna this is gonna be a pretty fun one to be a part of. As we touched on during Coach Coyne's interview, Bates sophomore wide receiver Sergio Beltron had a huge game against Tufts, catching seven passes for 127 yards and two touchdowns. It was a breakout performance for the converted quarterback, and he is our male Bobcat of the week. Well, Sergio, just take us back to growing up in California. Um, how did you first start playing football? What appealed to you about the sport? Yeah, so I wasn't the most athletic kid growing up. I was kind of lazy up till fourth grade. Uh, my mom, who's like I love so much, she uh, she kind of encouraged me to 
try to go out, play different sports, make some new friends. And uh, we saw this ad for Pop Warner in my area. So I started playing Pop Warner for the Redwood City 49ers in about fourth grade. So I've been playing football for a long time. And uh, first year, I made a lot of new friends. Uh, I stuck with it because of that. And then uh, I guess I just got more competitive throughout the years. And football was one of those things that you can compete in every single play. And I guess I just love that aspect of the game. And uh, yeah, that's kind of where it all started. Now, when you came to Bates, you were a quarterback. Yeah. When did you start playing quarterback uh, in high school or before that possibly? Yeah, uh, I actually started playing quarterback in Pop Warner. Okay. So I've been playing quarterback my entire life. Uh, it was more of a triple option run offense. So I kind of just handed off the ball and let my guys do their thing. But uh, yeah, I've been playing quarterback all my life uh, throughout high school. And yeah, I mean, this is like the first year trying something else yeah sure well last year we saw you getting some games and some run sets and everything mm-hmm. what was it like to get your feet wet kind of in college football yeah it's um last year was a very big wake-up call for me <laughs> uh I mean I've always done well when playing the sport of football uh but you know the NESCAC is very different different league and uh being like getting getting hit that first time was a kind of a wake-up call that I had to put on some weight you know get stronger I, I love the competitive like nature of the game and I'm excited that I get to compete with these dudes at a very high level. Let's talk about the uh, transition from quarterback to wide receiver this mm-hmm. year. You'd never played receiver before, it sounds like. Yeah. So um, when did the coaches tell you they wanted you to try out wide receiver, and what was your reaction, and how did you how did you approach things, kind of? Yeah, so I think it was last year, uh, the game week leading up to Williams. Mm. Uh, we were very like successful with our empty package, and uh, I think we kind of needed a third slot guy. I think the coaches know that I'm I love, like, being able to like showcase my athleticism, so being able to like make moves and be shifty in the slot and get open was, I mean, something that I loved like right away. So uh, I tried it out my first time last year against Williams, and uh, that's kind of like when I stuck with it. So all offseason, you knew you were coming in wide receiver this year. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I've been, yeah. It's a very different training program. Like in the summer, I mean, I, I like to say I conditioned a lot in the summer when I was practicing for quarterback, but uh. I had to like triple that this off season when uh, training to be a receiver, but yeah, yeah, I kind of knew. What's it been like building chemistry with Colton Basile? Yeah, I mean we're we're really close friends. Uh, he like lives kind of across the hall from me in, in the dorm, so we've always had like a close chemistry and connection. Uh, he's a great guy, and you know it's someone the entire team can look up to. So I knew like he would help me out throughout the process, and he's been a great great leader and mentor. So in the Tufts game, you had two touchdowns, but yeah. you also had two long catches preceding those two touchdowns. Yeah. So take us through the deep balls. Um, one deep ball where you just caught it deep down the field. The other one was more of a catch and run though, right? Yeah. 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 So the first deep ball, when we drew it up, we kind of just saw that they played a lot of man during the game. So kind of the, the message for me was to find open space and just take advantage of that open space. And I saw opportunity to just go down the field, use my speed and Colin just kind of put it perfectly on me so it was an easy catch to make because it was literally just right in the bread basket but uh yeah and then the second one was a catch and run uh honestly that was the first time I've ever seen open field like that so catching it and trying to run I like try to tell my legs to go faster and they wouldn't go was a very new experience for me but um yeah I mean Colton both times threw it right there on on the money and all I had to do was kind of just go up field and run yeah. And he seems to be really good on those back shoulder throws because mm-hmm. that first touchdown was the back shoulder, right? Yeah, it was. No, he's that's that's his like money ball. He, I don't think he's missed throwing that ball since like probably his freshman year. But yeah, he put it right on the money, and it was a easy catch to make. In that type of play, do you know it's coming to you? 
Not specifically, uh-huh. but because Colton is a quarterback and he loves throwing that ball, you kind of, <laughs> in the back of your head, know, like, okay, you got to get ready to catch this ball. Yeah. Take us back, though, like, when you were looking at colleges, actually. I'm curious mm-hmm. what made Bates the place for you coming from the West Coast. Yeah. Um, so, like, from my high school, there's a lot of players that go to NESCAC just because of, like, the competitive um, league and also just, like, the amazing academics of the of the league. So uh, I kind of started talking to a lot of different schools in the NESCAC. But honestly, the selling point was kind of the coaching staff and community of Bates. I mean, Coach Coyne and Coach Thompson were just, like, amazing people with very strong beliefs and values. And I knew that, you know, if I came here that they would, like, lead me the right way on and off the field. And, uh, I mean, they have. I, I love them. And, uh, yeah, I mean, Bates community, like, everyone knows it's a small community, but it's very tight. And, uh, I mean, everywhere I go, people are holding the door open for each other, you know, like, doing going out of the way to be extra nice to you. And, uh, I mean, I love that part of the community. What's been the biggest key to learning the receiver position? Is it route running? Is it just catching the ball? Like, what is it for you? Yeah, I guess um, just timing and trust. Because mm-hmm. a lot of the routes are meant to sometimes open up for other guys. So you got to be unselfish and know that I might have this, like, go ball that I may never get thrown to, but I have to run this 100%. So, like, the X receiver or saw it can get open. So just... Figuring figuring out that timing and uh, just trusting the quarterback to making the right read. Yeah. And what's this receiver group like? Because you graduated so many receivers from last year's team, yeah. so it's a whole new crop of guys kind of coming in. Uh, what's this kind of group dynamic like with among the receivers? Yeah, I mean, I think we all know that last year's kind of receiver core was amazing, like kind of out of this world. Uh, they're still like amazing people. They reach out to us and text us, like saying good luck. They set a very high standard, so our group now kind of like. Is trying to achieve that standard, and we're 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 very young, so we know we got a long way to go. But I mean, we're very close, like receiver group, and we do everything we can to help each other out. And I mean, yeah, I think we're all very talented, and we're young, but we have a very bright future, and we're fighting every day to you know reach that level. Yeah, it's not just the receivers who are young. There's 39 first years. You're mm-hmm. a sophomore. What's it like having all these young guys and knowing that this is really you know building towards something that could be potentially very very good, right? Yeah, I think I think that's like kind of the message in the media that we're a very like young team that we're gonna have a bright future. And I think we know that as a team, but we also want to you know start competing like right yeah. now. So right, right, right. <laughs> it's funny that balance is very hard because we yeah. want to start winning right now. Yeah. But also we understand that we're young and we have to mature very quickly. Yeah. Well, how about the big game coming up against Colby under the lights here at Garcelon? Yeah. I mean, you guys uh, thought you had him last year, I, I mm-hmm. did, at least in the first mm-hmm. half uh, last season. So what's it like going up against your rival, and what are you most looking forward to this Saturday? Yeah, I mean, they're a very talented team, and for us, we know it's going to be under the lights. I mean, we had an amazing atmosphere in our first game against yeah. Wesleyan under the lights, so we know our student section is going to go crazy. They're going to do their thing, be amazing, and... uh I mean, we're just excited to go compete and win this game. How's the new Garcelon turf? I want to ask a player yeah. about it. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, it's, I think we all know it's very beautiful to look at. Yeah. It's really cool. And just playing on it, it's super nice. Uh, I mean, yeah, I think every player has loved the, loved the upgrade. Excellent. So I guess any other thoughts you want to share on the season so far, maybe some goals you have in your mind, either personal or for, for the team kind of going forward here? I mean, I guess just for me personally, I just want to see the team just kind of start believing in ourselves more. Uh I mean, we each hold each other to a very high standard, and uh, when we don't hit that standard, we can like kind of, you know, get down in the blues sometimes. But uh, just like keeping an open mind, keep it going forward, and you know, keep on competing every every play. When you yeah. came here, did you ever think you'd play wide wide receiver? Uh, <laughs> like coming out of high school. Yeah. Funny story, but when I came in as a freshman, and I had to introduce myself to the 
to the, uh, I mean, the team. You had to say your name, your position, and where you're from. And I said, hi, I'm Sergio. I'm from California, and I'm a quarterback slash athlete. So when I said the slash athlete part, I think in the back of my mind, I knew that I could help the team in a different way other than quarterback. So it's kind of funny that it's panned out this way, but yeah. <laughs> awesome. Sergio Beltran, our male Bobcat of the Week. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. The volleyball team had a busy week taking on Colby, NCAA Division II opponent St. Michael's, Western Connecticut State, and Keene State over the course of four days. The Bobcats ended the week on a high note with a 3-0 win over Keene State. First year, Sofia Castiglione recorded nine kills with an attack percentage of 41.2% against St. Michael's on Friday. Then she recorded six kills and a season-high eight blocks in the 3-0 win over Keene State on Saturday. Castiglione ranked 16th in the NESCAC with 0.6 blocks per set, and she is our female Bobcat of the Week. Well, Sophia, being from California, just, I know volleyball, obviously a huge sport there, but growing up, how'd you first get into the sport? Yeah, I mean, I started in middle school in seventh grade, and all my friends started to do club volleyball, so that was kind of the main way I got into it, and that's more... It's more competitive in club than high school. So, yeah, I started seventh grade, then I loved it, kept doing it every single year, continued in high school as well. And that's where I made most of my friends as well. And it's been like a really just a fun time throughout the seven or something years I've been playing. Yeah. Was that your main sport? Were there any other sports you played? Uh, I tried out like I did soccer for a while when I was younger, um, softball, basketball, but I felt more comfortable playing volleyball so then I just stuck to that and that only. Great so being in California was there a mix of beach volleyball and indoor or how did that kind of go? Um, there was an option to do beach and I did beach kind of just for fun it wasn't more of like competitive sport um, but a lot of my friends did it and it's it just it's a different sport a little bit. Oh, yeah I mean obviously you're playing sand and whatnot. Yeah, I yeah. Mean, <laughs> what, what makes you prefer the indoor version I guess? Yeah well indoor you're kind of specialized to like one skill mm. for beach you kind of have to be well-rounded in every area so being a middle blocker you're usually not that good at passing, so that doesn't really translate well over to beach volleyball, so that's why I kind of stuck to indoor, and that's kind of how I started and never really ventured out to the competitive side of beach. So you've been a middle blocker your whole time playing volleyball? Yeah. Okay, yeah. what about that position really appeals to you? Well, they put me in because I was tall, and I've always been tall, so that was kind of like the giveaway and kind of like why I started playing that position and then I just I liked it and I just stuck to, stuck to that and all positions are just like super different like like and it's insane because for middle blockers you have to be really disciplined and really focused and reading the setter and where she's going to set on the other side of the net and it's not very similar to a lot of other positions on the court which is really unique. Yeah, a lot of block opportunities, obviously, that's the name. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah. also some fun kill opportunities. Uh -huh. I know I was talking with, we had Chrissy Chu and Katie Kortikos on last week, and uh -huh. Chrissy was talking about all the different types of sets. And for middle blocker, it's yeah. very quick. That's yeah. kind of uh, fun. How do you um, work with Chrissy on that, I guess? <laughs> it's all about, you got to trust the setter because a lot of times you're you're jumping in the air before the ball is even set. So you really got to trust your setter. And the, the timing has got to be on point, very precise. But because the set is so quick, the pass has to be 
a lot better to set the middle than to the outside or right side. So we don't, as middles, get as much opportunities to hit. So a lot of the time we're kind of being like distractions and ploys to the other hitters on the other side of the net to try and like hold one of the middle blockers on the other side. So there's like a, a gap between the block on the outside. So that's also part of our role. Instead of just hitting, it's being a distraction, which is kind of interesting. I think a lot of people don't know that about that position sure then how have you worked on your defensive abilities being able to get eight blocks there uh, against yeah. key state yeah that was great i mean like i said it's it's being disciplined and reading the setter because you don't really have time to to watch the set and then go and try to block so you kind of have to predict like where the setter is going to set it which is kind of a mind game Certainly. So um, being from California, we've got a number of players from California come to Bates, but what made Bates the place for you? I know on the website it said East Coast Vibes. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about that. <laughs> I mean, when I first visited, it was the it was in fall and the leaves were changing and everything about the campus and the area was like beautiful and it really like stuck out to me. I knew I wanted to go to school on the East Coast, have like a change in community and atmosphere than California. Um, but yeah, the campus is beautiful that the, the leaves were like, that kind of like brought me in to be honest. Um, and then just like meeting the team, they were all like super nice. Like I visited some of the other NESCAC schools and I didn't get the same vibe and feel, um, and like welcoming as I did with Bates. So that kind of solidified my option to go here. Sure. And the volleyball team gets to play an alumni gym, one of the most historic buildings probably in New England. Yeah. What's that experience like playing there? Yeah. I mean, it definitely looks a lot different than a lot of the other gyms I have played in. But I like I like the old feel. It's very historic and it's it's homey and, and like comfortable. I feel very like at home in the, in the gym. So as a first year, I, I was asked first year's biggest difference between playing club in your case or high school, whatever you want to say in terms of that and college yeah I mean the level of play is definitely higher and it's kind of like adapting to that level of play it's fun to be more competitive and playing against better people because that makes you better um and I enjoy it a lot it's it's fun yeah what adjustments have you kind of been making uh, you know as the season goes along it's more in practice practice has been more disciplined and you really have to stay on top of things and do work outside of practice, whether that's like watching teams play and scouting their players. So there's a lot more work that goes into practice and all around playing volleyball in college. Excellent. Well, I guess just any other thoughts you wanted to share like, on the season so far, um, you know, coming from California, what's it been like for you? It hasn't been that different yet because it hasn't snowed. <laughs> right. But, <laughs> That's true. But so far, it's been really fun. I've enjoyed all the time that I've had with my teammates, and preseason was a really good way to get settled in the school before all the other students came in. So I really appreciated that. Um, and it's just been managing my homework and schoolwork on top of volleyball which I've been doing well and I think sports have always kept me grounded and disciplined doing schoolwork because I know I don't have extra time to do it later so I love the sport aspect the aspect of sports at college but yeah it's just been a really fun time and yeah 
no regrets. <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, looking forward to some more volleyball matches. Not home for a bit. you got some road matches coming up. I know mm-hmm. at Trinity, but I'm sure Bobcats will be back in Alumni Gym uh, soon enough. Sophia Castiglione, our female Bobcat of the Week. Thanks yeah. so much. <laughs> Thank you. It's less than a month before the rowing teams compete in the world-famous Head of the Charles Regatta. Head coach Peter Steenstra enters his 16th year at the helm of the program, but this season he welcomes two new assistant coaches. Katie Flynn for the women's team and Michael Tara Boletti for the men's team. Let's meet them. Coach, um, you have two new assistants this year. We'll talk to them in a moment. Uh, but um, you give them a lot of responsibility. So tell me a little bit about big picture, how you kind of work with your assistants to run a very, very big program. Yeah, it's a big program. Uh, what, we'd mostly, what I do with them, first and foremost, is they're in charge of all recruiting. They, they absolutely have 100% of control of that entire operation. Um, I'm one head coach, two full programs, um, half a million dollars worth of stuff in the boathouse. There's a lot that has to be managed, not to mention the 80-plus athletes. So we have a whole lot of things that have to happen that isn't recruiting. So with these guys, uh, putting it all on their plate, it, it gives them full ownership, full autonomy. They can just sort of operate that thing from beginning to end. And, and my role through the recruiting process really is an assistant to them. So if they have an athlete they think I should meet, then, then we set that up so that I can meet them. I, I take uh, recruits out in the launch, and they sit you know, with me for a practice and that sort of thing. Um, so really they're the ones that are, are providing the future of the program with its, uh, with its next generation. Great. So let's introduce the two new assistants, uh, Katie Flynn, assistant women's rowing coach and, of course, recruiting coordinator. And, Katie, um, take us back growing up. How did you first – you involved with rowing and how, how do you develop your passion for the sport? Yeah, so I started rowing in the eighth grade at Boston Latin School um, and I kind of was just trying to find something to do um, and I asked my sister, I was like, oh, like this looks kind of cool at the extracurricular fair um, and so we got involved and then just immediately fell in love with the sport. Um, there's something about rowing that just once it clicks for you, you just, you're all in. And I kind of found that through there. And Michael Tarabelletto, our new assistant men's rowing coach and recruiting coordinator, same question for you, kind of. How did you first get involved with rowing? What developed your passion for it? Well, I also have a similar answer to Katie. I did start out in eighth grade yeah. um, rowing at St. Joseph's Collegiate Institute in Buffalo, New York. Um, I think for me, rowing was a sense of uh, calm and a way to really relax in terms of, I mean, you really don't think about that sport in terms of like relaxation, but once you really get into a groove and you start to really get into the sport, you do get that sense of calm and and focus from the sport, and that's something that I became addicted to. Um, so that's really where I started out with that. Yeah, excellent. Then Katie, um, obviously Division One rower there at Holy Cross. So what appealed to you about getting into coaching specifically and and coming up here to Bates? Yeah, so um, I played around with a lot of ideas of what I was going to do um, post-grad during college. Um, I looked at things like marketing and pre-med. I was a little bit all over the place. But what I really found was consistent throughout my entire college experience was my passion for rowing. Um, And towards my years as an upperclassman, I started really thinking about, you know what, like maybe I should just stick with doing something I love. Um, And so that's how I kind of started thinking about coaching and um, wound up luckily here at Bates. And and Michael, you started your coaching career a little bit unexpectedly, right? In college, you were rowing for the club team there and then your coach left. And so it was up to you to run the program. How'd that go? Um, It was, it it was kind of a handful at first. Uh, He, 
uh, unfortunately had to leave suddenly, and we, we were stuck with the situation where um, we needed to balance us as seniors versus the entire team. So um, we had a, a group of my close friends, uh, we banded together and sacrificed our time to uh, keep the team aloft, and that's what it really was about for us for that year. Um, that's what really got me into coaching was supporting my fellow teammates and, of course, my uh, my uh, uh, underclassmen, uh, brand-new rowers, getting them into the sport um, and uh, having them try out something that they love and getting them addicted to rowing. That's really what drove me there. And it seems like you enjoyed the experience because you're still uh, coaching here. <laughs> oh, I fell in love with coaching immediately yeah. that year. It's something that I frequently came back to. I... Um, I, I never really considered myself a coach up until that point, and then it all of a sudden clicked, and now I, I, I'm both. I'm really just both, like, I'm more obviously more so a coach, but um, a rower at heart still, absolutely, yeah. Absolutely, and Peter, you know, when you found out you were going to have to replace both of your coaches this year, uh, what appealed to you about, you know, Katie and Michael when they, you know, when they apply, and what made you want to bring them to Bates? Yeah, well, yeah, first of all, we're very proud of both Kean and Carly yeah. for what they accomplished while they're here, and then they obviously have gotten some pretty great uh, career jumps. So we're, we're very happy for them, and we're proud of the time that we had with them here. Um, and these two, you know, through the application process, it happened rather quickly. You know, I really wanted to get them, you know, whoever was going to accept the position, I wanted to get them here as quickly as possible. And uh, both uh, Katie and Mike were, were. We had great phone conversations. We had. Um, I, I could. I could sense the energy that was coming from both of them and the excitement that they wanted to be here. So, in a similar way to how we recruit our athletes, we recruit coaches that have energy for not just the sport, but for this school and for this. Um, you know, this level of competition. Right, we're at the higher end of the Division Three world. And they really wanted to kind of, from what we gathered on the phone, that's what they wanted to have um, as part of their coaching career. So uh, it, you could just sense on the phone that it was going to be a, a pretty good fit. Um, I think the easy part is them fitting in to here. The hard part is that uh, I don't know, I'm I'm grumpy and old, so <laughs> so the hard part there is us learning to get along well, which has gone very very well so far, but. Um, I, I do want to pat myself on the back for at least having the ability to read them on the phone and to be able to make a pretty good call from that point because they've both been great so far. Excellent. And Katie, I mean, Peter mentioned this earlier, but the recruiting responsibilities, what are your thoughts on that in terms of, uh, you know, I imagine something, it'll be kind of a new experience for you. Um, yeah, definitely a new experience. Um, but it's been really great talking to recruits on the phone, um, kind of just, diving in, getting to know them, especially the ones that have already been invited on officials, getting to know them while they're here, um, to continue recruiting them. Um, and it's really just, I almost want to say easy, talking about how great of a school Bates is. Um, so that part of the process just really makes it easy for me. And Michael, how about you? How about um, Have you had any experience you know, trying to recruit people to a rowing program before? Yeah, absolutely. I, I uh, In the past, I've dealt with a lot of uh, brand-new kids, walk-ons, kids I've rowed before and they're super interested uh, so again, like Katie said, um, me being able to talk about Bates, uh, uh, to, uh, be able to talk about the rowing program, uh, was super fluent for me. Um, and I, I, I loved in hearing the excitement of these recruits talking about how much they have a passion for rowing and them sending me emails about, um, 
like, oh, this is how fast I am. I really want to be on the team. It's 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 very uh, exciting and, and and fun to listen to their stories. And Peter, we talked about this before, but this program is a blend of recruit athletes and walk-ons, right? It is. It's it's becoming more recruited than mm-hmm. than walk-on just because we have so many more yeah. junior programs and high school programs that are out there. Um, but we we love to find those on campus. Um, former athletes or never before athletes, we we love to bring them into the fold, and and these two are going to do a good job bringing them in. Excellent. How about that boathouse, uh, Katie? Have you got a chance <laughs> to check that out? Um, definitely. Yeah, the boathouse. I can say very the nicest boathouse I've ever I've ever rode out of. Um, so it's been it's been really great so far. And Michael, what were your impressions when you saw that? Uh, I I have seen my fair share of boathouses, and this is absolutely the best boathouse I've ever seen. No doubt about it. Have you all got a chance to get out on the Androscoggin River much yet? Yes, yeah. We've been at practice for a few weeks now, um, so the team's really um, getting into it, um, especially with the Charles coming up in four weeks. We're starting to really make some moves. Yeah, the head of Charles, um, the fall, big fall regatta. Um, have either of you rode at it before? I assume possibly yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I've been there uh, one or two times in my yeah. youth, um, or I believe in my high school team. Um, we didn't have a chance to go into college, which I definitely regret, mm. but... Uh, I have been there before, and it's pretty big river, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. What about your experience? Um, yeah. So, uh, growing up on the Charles, um, yeah, it was great. I got to I got to see it every year. Um, basically, being built up. You know, the week before, everyone would be getting really excited, seeing all the tents go up. Um, and then I've only raced there a few times, but I've gone every single year um, since I started rowing, which has been great. Excellent. And Peter, you know, with you know two um, assistants here who this is their first year at Bates. What do you hope to they experience? You know over the course of the school year, what do you hope they learn to apply to going forward? Um, I, I hope they learn that we can, we can certainly do a lot with very little. Mm-hmm. I, I think that, I think they both come to us with that, that experience of their own. Um, but knowing that we, we kind of have this nice history that's in place. Um, but at the same time, we, it's from that history is built from a whole lot of work that happens. So um, I think that if there's something that is to be learned here it's it's uh, really getting the most out of what you've got great and i guess um katie any other final thoughts you want to share about the upcoming season what you're most looking forward to um i guess um apart from racing what i'm most looking forward to is kind of seeing the student athletes kind of grow um into their roles on the team especially some of the freshmen are really starting to step it up right now and just seeing people develop you know seeing people make those changes every day at practice um and really starting to make progress towards their goals is really exciting Michael, how about you? Any final thoughts? For me, it really is the work, seeing the progress that the kids make. Um, and, of course, we have at the end of the, the term, we have our races, which is what the work they put in for. And it's great to see um, all the changes that they make, all the steps, all the strides, all accumulating onto those races to see the actual results of their the fruit of their labors. I think I should add in that, first of all, I thank the two of you for even accepting these jobs because it was a real leap of faith on their part, right? Think about it in terms of, uh, I mean, Flynn had like one, you were here, it, technically you were a week late, right? <laughs> I mean, she arrived on the day of the first practice mm-hmm. and Mike had only been here for a week or two prior. So they came here sight unseen. They they were able to do maybe a little bit of background check on what it would be like to deal with me. That's about it. But, uh, you know, it, it took a little leap of faith on for the two of them and some courage to be like, all right, I'll, I'll do this thing. And uh, I, it's clear that it's already paying off. But I, I appreciate that. So I want to express that here because it's not an easy thing to make that sort of a jump. So glad to have you guys. 
The Bates cross-country and track and field community took a hit this weekend with the passing of John Fitzgerald from the class of 1987. A six-time All-American and two-time NCAA champion at Bates, Fitzgerald to this day holds the school record in the indoor 5,000-meter run and in the 10,000-meter run in outdoor track and field. His classmate, teammate, good friend, and a three-time cross-country All-American, Mark Hatch, joins the Bobcast this week to reflect on what Fitzgerald meant to him and the Bates community. Well, Mark, just to start, let's talk a little bit about how you first met John. Obviously, you're both on the cross-country team your first year there in the fall, but what were your some initial impressions of him when you first met him at Bates? Thank you. I uh, appreciate the time and opportunity to celebrate John Patrick Fitzgerald, class of 87. Uh, John and I both uh, enrolled in the fall of 83. Uh, late August, we came for preseason training for a few days, and Walt Slavinsky, who had been on the job uh, for maybe 30 years at the time. He retired after 42 years at the helm of cross country and track, um, paraded the first year students um, into Merrill Gym and um, walked us up to the display case. Um, and in that display case, there were probably no more than 20 senior citations. And I think senior citation was relatively new at the time, likely 10 of those 20 were male distance runners. Um, and it's great to return to Bates and see all the other sports um, and faces represented. Um, but I think literally half were male distance runners. And Walt said to us, if you want to be on this wall, we're going to do it together um, as individuals and as a team. Uh, and we've got this great potential. This class has this great potential. And Fitzy turned to me and said, hey, pretty cool. Let's, let's, let's get on that wall. The bond grew throughout those four years, some really great teams. Um, tell me a little bit in general kind of in how those teams were in those late 80s, kind of latter era, Walt Slavinsky, and how John maybe was one of the, the leaders there. Sure. Um, and I'll try to make this quick, but there's a lot to say here. Um, the 1976 team uh, was a team that won a lot of things um, in cross country and track, um, but it um uh, and he kept holding up us up to that team. Um, and he, um, but he said, you've got great potential. Um, just to do a quick recap in cross country, and we had some good track success as well. But uh, John was a distance runner through and through, most decorated distance runner, I think, in, in Bates history. We had four state champions, and University of Maine was part of the state meet at that time, not just Division Three. Um, we had four NESCAC wins, um, and the team won two um New England Division Three titles in our junior and senior year. Um, I think those last two years, we went 65 wins and four losses. And all four losses were to Division One programs. Um, we raced every weekend, which might have been foolish at the time. Uh, and we would have the the, the Cat Classic, which was the UNH, uh, UVM, and Bates um, tri-meet. Um, and so we weren't afraid to jump up in uh, and and race division one um talent so but walt kept holding us up saying hey you're not quite as good as the 76 team yet um and that drove us as a team and john um was absolutely the leader um and and setting the pace um uh, john was uh, a top runner right from the get-go and obviously he was a two-time national champion and he's also still the record holder in multiple events at Bates. What made him so great? I mean, yeah. to have those records hold up to today is amazing. Yeah. So um, allow me to just tell a couple of stories. First of all, John uh, made All-American um, his sophomore year 
in cross country. Um, uh, the, at that time, uh, you had to be in the top 25 of the country. Um, he finished 23rd um, at Ohio Wesleyan University. I was a half step behind him at 24th. Um, we both fell down that day, um, really sloppy, sloppy day. And so we didn't run together like we used to um, most races, um, stride for stride. And, and uh, you know, it's a unique situation I shared with his wife on, on Sunday, um, three days after he passed, that, uh, that I think I ran 5,000 miles, stride for stride, breath for breath next to John Fitzgerald. Um, and you get to know someone incredibly well, even beyond being roommates for three of our four years. Um, he had, first of all, an incredible focus. Um, he, um, he, he did a lot at Bates, but he really focused on academics um, and his running. Um, he had a tremendous uh, work ethic, um, and we put the miles in. Um, you know, um, dare I say we were best of friends, roommates, teammates, co-captains, but sometimes also competitors. And I remember one night, Saturday night, uh, before we were going out at about eight o'clock, um, we would tally up our, our training log. And most of our miles were together, but not always um, uh, every mile. And I remember this night, I, I, I tallied mine up. I had 92 miles that week. Um, and uh, he tallied his up. He had 90. Um, and so I said, hey, I'm looking forward to going out. And I went to the bathroom and I came back. He has running shoes on. And he went out and ran three miles that night. So um, nobody could surpass John in terms of his work ethic. And I guess I have one story that I'd love to tell that epitomizes um, his work ethic. Um, our junior year, we both went to nationals and cross country at Stone Mountain, um, Georgia. We were training Thanksgiving weekend or before in the main snow and cold. And we find ourselves on the Emory course it's 85 degrees with 85% humidity. Um, and John um, was in the top five um, with a half a mile to go um, at the national championship. Um, and he had heat stroke. Um, and so we couldn't finish. Um, and so it's Thanksgiving weekend and he's disappointed with the end of his, of his junior cross country. We disappear for three weeks. Uh, he goes home to Rangeley, Maine. John was from Rangeley, Maine. Uh, I split my time in my childhood between rural Maine and, and Massachusetts. And so we had that bond as well. Uh, it was a horrible winter with snowstorm after snowstorm after snowstorm. Um, and John came back in mid-January um, and I said, well, how'd it go? And how's your training? And I, did, I was in Boston. I didn't do much training. And John said, ah, I did pretty well, but he was pretty modest. Um, I think I, I envisioned something like Rocky in Siberia. Again, Rangeley's not like Siberia, um, but Rocky carrying logs and trudging through the snow. Um, so John sets foot on the track in late January, early February for our first indoor meet. Uh, and he's in the 5,000 meters and it's a dual meet, one other team there. And John goes out hard. And after one or two laps of this, um, Coach, Coach Slavinsky's yelling at him, slow down. You're too starchy. Um, uh, you got you to gotta take it easy, John. It's early in the season. And John just keeps on going and going and going. And nobody's supposed to run fast this early. Um, and John clocks a 14-24 5K, which still is the indoor 5K record at Bates College. Nobody's touched it since. But what nobody knows about that day, and hopefully they're all listening, um, is John did it completely alone. He lapped the entire field once. He lapped most of the field twice. And he lapped some of the field three times. He did it alone early in the season when he's not supposed to be fast. Uh, two months later, John won his first national championship on the track. He ran 14.26, two seconds slower. 
in the best competition in Division Three. I think that meet was at Oshkosh in Wisconsin. Um, and John came home with his first national championship trophy. So second to none, his focus, his, his work ethic, his grit. But he also, I have to tell you, had this ability, mind over body, to push himself like nobody else I've ever met. Wow. And then how about off the you know track or off the course? What was he like, you know, away from competition, even though obviously he spent a lot of time doing that and working out with you guys? Yeah, I'd like to actually one more um, quote that we had about our running days. And it's a quote I think my father gave me when I was in high school. And we actually posted this quote on the back of our door um, in the dorm. We lost it eventually, but we sort of memorized it. Um, it was a quote by Reverend Bob Richards, um, and it went something like this. The thing that makes a champion is simple, plain, and clear. It's not being almost, just about, or pretty near. It's summoning the utmost from one's inner core and giving every bit of it, and then just finding a little bit more. So that was sort of a quote we talked about. And running is it's a unique sport. I imagine swimming is pretty intense too. You're individual, you're in the pool, you're looking at the bottom um, of the, you know, the black stripe and knowing when to, to flip turn, but you probably don't know what's going on six lanes, uh, you know, to your right or to your left. And I think running is uh, this individual and team sport where um, the individual part, you can always find just a little bit more. And John Fitzgerald was, was heroic, notorious for finding a little bit more when none of us could, could even come close to him. So um, that's, that's the quote that sort of drove us um, for three years as roommates and teammates. Um, and John was second to none in terms of that competitive fire. So off the field, um, off the track, uh, you know, a couple of quick stories. Uh, no, John was beloved. He was a gentle, kind, generous human being with a huge smile. Everyone loved John. Um, he, he was not, uh, you know, a, a natural extrovert that was always able to, you know, to, to um, you know, talk to everybody in large groups, although he did fine, um, certainly. But one-on-one, but -on -one, um, uh, dozens of people Everyone respected him because of his athletic prowess, but he was a very serious student, majored in geology. Um, his junior year, he, after his junior year, he spent the summer living in a tent in the White Mountains uh, with Professor John Creasy. Um, he loved the experiential learning, um, uh, and he was in the outcrop eight hours a day doing research in the beating hot sun in the White Mountains, but either early in the morning or late in the afternoon or both, he'd go for his runs. Um, and so, um, you know, serious student, serious athlete. Um, uh, among the fun things, um, and I'll, I'll share this very openly, that the puddle jump yeah. um, at Bates was not always a, a institutionally sanctioned um, event. <laughs> uh, it started in 1980, uh, 1976 with a bunch of guys, or 1977, um, who probably on St. Patrick's Day drank a little green beer uh, and decided they were going to go out on a whim and chop a hole in the ice and jump through it. Um, and so they came back probably singing some Irish tunes um, and they wrote in this composition book. It was a black and white um, hardbound composition book um, that we all took notes on in college and so forth. And they had an oath and you signed the book and they had all of these things um, in the book to pass on to the next class. So the senior with the most Irish name, and this was on page seven of this composition book, was dubbed the Puddle Master. So um, the, the night after our junior year puddle jump on St. Patrick's Day, 
uh, we had a knock on the door of our room and two strange guys that we didn't even know said, we're looking for John Patrick Fitzgerald. Well, that's Fitzy. I'm Fitzy. Well, here you go. You're Puddle Master. So, um, so the next year, um, we had to go out and prep the hole um, for the 90 some odd students who would arrive at nine o'clock at night. It was all in the book. Uh, and in some years, you could wade into the puddle because it was a mild March. Other years, um, uh, it was minus 10 degrees for three weeks beforehand. And this was one of those times. So after commons, after a hearty lunch, uh, we bundled up and went out to, to the puddle, uh, Lake Andrews, as we all know it. And uh, John had his little Boy Scout hatchet. And we started chopping a hole in the ice. Uh, and we weren't getting anywhere. We're out there for three hours. And we barely even scratched the surface. The, the, uh, the puddle was probably only three and a half feet deep. And the ice was probably three feet um, thick that year. So uh, about 4.30 that afternoon, some guy comes out of the, the, the facilities um, and says, uh, uh, you know, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm done today um, for my work in, in facilities. Um, but why didn't you guys check 12, page 12? Um, you're supposed to come see me in facilities. And he had this auger, this big tool uh, that he chopped the hole in the ice. Uh, and then uh, it was done in like a half an hour. And we were all relieved that we were, you know, going to be able to support this puddle jump. But the puddle master on page 14 of this composition book had to christen the, 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 the hole. So it had to be first in and last out and had to wait while everybody else jumped in. And it was minus 10 degrees that night. So John goes first, I go second, and I'm wearing a shirt that froze to my body like immediately. And John has to wait outside in the cold for another half hour for everybody to jump in. I go inside and I tell you, I don't know what waxing is like, but having a t-shirt that is uh, frozen to your body and trying to pull it off is probably as similar of an experience. But John waited another 30 minutes and was was um, was encouraging everybody as they jumped in. Okay to get wet. Okay, you're going to be fine. This is going to be great. So he could be an incredible cheerleader. Um, and I tell you, just beloved as an individual um, at Bates College. Um, kind, gentle, generous, um, fun, uh, and a serious student and an awesome athlete. A long-winded story, but I think it was worth telling. Oh, for sure. And then obviously you stayed great friends after college. I know you got to know his family really well. So how did that kind of, how are you, you able to, you know, stay in touch and, and you know, maintain that friendship after college? Because sometimes, you know, might be friends in college, you could go separate ways, but you guys stayed yeah. really close. You know, not hard at all after um, living together for three of our four years. Um, a lot of phone calls. Um, uh, I went west and, and uh, but had a lot of um, business trips to the east. And we always got together with a handful of, of people. And, you know, John was beloved with, uh, you know, all of our teammates. So I know there were a lot of track teammates as, as well. Um, John was always doing some really interesting things. Um, he, uh, um, he restored wooden canoes. Um, and these are not the light aluminum canoes that you can carry and, and just throw up on top of your car and strap on and go canoeing down the street. These, these things weighed hundreds of pounds. And uh, John, um, uh, his wife told me um, this week that he has 24 of them in the garage. Um, so uh, she's, um, and some of these are beautifully restored. He would do them every winter. And then in the spring and summer, he would go up to the Allagash uh, with some high school friends or others. And they would do these uh, long canoe trips with portages that were, 
you know, pretty significant up in the Allagash. He, he loved the outdoors. He lived in Concord, Mass., um, near Walden Pond, um, uh, often um, would think about Henry David Thoreau. Um, again, um, this is this grounded um, uh, love for the outdoors, um, kindred spirit um, who, who really um, lived life authentically. Um, he was a geologist by trade, uh, cleaned up Superfund sites, um, worked with a whole crew at a couple of different companies. Um, and so he and I, um, you know, would talk about uh, canoes. We talk about uh, his family, leaving a beloved wife, Maria, that he met in grad school at Boston College. He's got a, a grown son, Brendan, a, a grown daughter, Aaron, who actually is a geologist, um, getting a master's in geology as well. But not hard to keep in touch with Fitzy, not hard to celebrate um, with Fitzy. Fitzy fought an incredible battle, uh, six years um, with cancer, four years at stage four, probably, to be honest, um, fought a lot longer and harder than your normal um, person because of, of, of his, he was a physical specimen um, in terms of his, his, his athletic prowess and, and so forth. So yes, very easy to, uh, to keep in touch with him. Um, he also, um, living in Concord, Mass., they, he and his wife bought a house that was used as a British hospital in 1750. And he restored this house um, marvelously well. Um, he marched every Patriot's Day for a number of years as a British soldier um, in history reenactments. It, he had done a lot when he was a, a kid with his father. Um, and so he's a history buff, um, a reader, a thinker, uh, an outdoorsman, and how easy it is to keep in touch with this uh, incredible human who, who gave people so much. Certainly. Well, any other thoughts you wanted to mention about John we haven't got to talk about yet? I am curious about that sophomore year meet because finishing in you know 23rd and 24th respectively, looking back on it, that's pretty special. Hands down. Um, John is the most decorated runner in Bates College history. Six-time All-American, um, once on cross-country, five times on the track. Um, most of the time, I was just hanging on, um, just trying to hang with him. Um, he had such a strong core that... Uh, that they'd say, oh yeah, look at Fitzy, he's, uh, he's got a six pack there. And they'd say, look at Hatch, he's 10 pounds heavier. He's carrying a keg around his belly. Um, uh, in fact, Walt Slavinsky used to joke and we'd look at me, he'd said, nothing I hate more than a skinny guy with a pot belly. The bond that we had, but I, I wanna say it really carried over to um, Jim Hewlett, um, uh, Mark Desjardins, who were class of 88, um, uh, James Goodberlade, who was um, class of 85 and an All-American, uh, ran a 408 mile. Uh, that record may still stand today. Um, you know, we had these guys that loved academics and we had these inspirational van rides to Williams College where we talk about uh, uh, one class that someone was taking that semester and, and, and we carried that on. But there was a... a, a there was a spirit that excel academically, set yourself up. And even after college, I would say much of the success that our team had on the track or in cross country, we carried over to our professional lives and said, let's set really bold goals. Let's be confident that we have a plan to reach those goals and let's let not let's not let anything stop us. Um, so I tribute John as our captain, our leader, um, as um, really and just an unbelievably um, competitive and successful human being um, as a catalyst for this energy that that we so enjoyed 
um, under um, Coach Slavensky and these great cross country and track teams, and then um, carried on life afterwards. Well, Mark, thank you so much for joining us on the Bobcast and reflecting on your memories of John. Tremendous career at Bates. What a life he led. And Mark, thank you again. Wonderful. Thank you. This week, all the fall sports teams are on the road, except football, which hosts Colby in the big game this Saturday at 6 p.m., and women's soccer, which hosts Southern Maine Sunday at 4 p.m. Remember, links to live stats and video for home and away contests can be found at GoBatesBobcats.com and on the Bates Bobcats mobile app. And we'll recap all the action next week on the Bates Bobcast.